Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm really excited for this week's guest, Alyssa Flowers, who is a PhD student at the University of Miami, where she studies research methods, applied statistics, and data visualization with... Uh, our good friend Alberto Cairo. Um, Alyssa and I sat down at the Tapestry Conference back in December uh, to talk about her interests in school and her work in the research methods department and in the communications department uh, and talk about how she visually communicates both large and small numbers and her blog, Data and Dragons, which I've been uh, really enjoying over the last few months. Just a couple of quick announcements before I get to the interview. Uh, The first thing, if you're interested in getting some free books, go check out a blog post I wrote a few weeks ago. Uh, I've linked to it uh, in the episode notes. I'm giving away some extra books I found in my office while I was cleaning out some bookshelves. I have a couple extra copies of uh, Cole Nussbaumer Naflex book, Storytelling with Data. I have an extra copy of Andy Kirk's book, extra copy of the Big Book of Dashboards, extra copy of John Tukey's book. So if you want to try to win one of those free books, uh, go over to the blog post that I've linked to in the show notes and see what you need to do to win those books. Um, It's been a couple of months. I'm just going to keep extending that contest until um, we reach the threshold that I can start mailing those books around the world. Second announcement is, again, another blog post I wrote a couple weeks ago on data visualization inventors, founders, and developers. I've been doing some writing lately about different types of graphs, and I got to thinking about who are the people who created and invented and developed some of the graphs that we use all the time, not just the line graphs and the pie charts and the area charts, but you know who created the Venn diagram, for example, that has a capital V in it, or who created the first Sankey diagram or the Gantt chart. So I wrote a blog post and opened up a Google Sheet where I'm asking people to put in some names and links and original articles from people who they think may be the original inventor or creator of some of our favorite data visualization uh, that we use day to day. So that blog post is also linked on the show notes page. So go on over there and check it out and see if you can contribute to this uh, open project. And maybe we can have a nice catalog of uh, people who invented some of our favorite graphs. So anyway, on this week's show, I'm really excited to chat with Alyssa Flowers, and here is that interview. So do you want to start by talking a little bit about your background and how you got Mm -hmm. to the University of Miami? Sure. Uh, So I sort of arrived through a circuitous route, um, which I think a lot of people do. There's a lot of... uh, I I got into this by falling backwards through a door and sliding into a new dimension, um, (laughs) seems to be the common story. Yeah, a common Um, thread, yeah. Yeah. Um, So my undergraduate degree is actually in social psychology, um, and I was a little bit of a lab rat. I did a lot of research, which meant I had data, which meant I had to analyze it. Um, I actually applied to and was accepted into and was considering going to some PhD programs in social psychology research. I was studying um, implicit bias. And what wound up happening um, was that I realized that what had me leaping out of bed at two in the morning and running across campus uh, was not that I had a new idea about how implicit bias worked. Mm -hmm. It was that I had a new idea about a potential interaction effect in Mm, my data. Um, So that got me thinking that maybe I wanted to work in, uh, in data and analysis maybe more than I wanted to. So you were, you were really research. more like excited about working in the, getting your hands dirty in the data. I just wanted to see what was going on. Yeah. I, want, I like exploring. I like making things. Right. Um, so I, I decided to sort of lean into that curiosity. Right. Um, so from there, I actually graduated, moved to Washington, D.C., and worked in a mix of data analysis, management, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of... Um, 
database design for about five years. So I worked for a consulting company, um, as many people <laughs> who graduate and move to DC do. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then I worked for a nonprofit as sort of their, um, my title was data manager. Anything that could, anything that could wind up in a graph was my job. Okay. Um, so a very wide range of things. Um, and what I realized, uh, I realized sort of two things. One was that people kept coming up to me and asking me questions about, you know, is this legitimate? Can I say this? How, how far can we push this? What does this mean? You know, is, is this a real difference? And I wound up saying, I don't know mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing was that when I gave people data, people treated it as the hard and fast truth. Mm. Um, so it was this. I think uh, Mona talked about this a little bit earlier, uh, the terror of your word being gospel mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and not really having those checks and balances. And I realized that I just didn't know enough to do the job that I was doing in a responsible way. Um, so I started thinking about going back to graduate school and actually, um, as fate would have it, saw Alberto Cairo speak at um, a conference I was at for work and thought, what if I did that, that also? Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> Um, so the, so let me interrupt real quick. So yeah. the people at the nonprofit who were coming to you, they were, those are like senior researchers. Um, it was there. I wouldn't say there was a research team, but it yeah. would be like the, the CEO would come to me and I say, gotcha. okay. yeah. And so they didn't have like a data background. No. Okay. These were very, they were, were very smart, uh, very analytic people who right, right. did their own analysis and would go into the data and do stuff and say, wait, can I actually do this? Right, right, right. That kind of thing. And so they were asking you to double check, fact check, mm-hmm. but, but asking more, sounds like asking more of the harder analytical questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we also, we worked with uh, a research company at, at one point where they did a little bit more an in-depth analysis for us. Mm-hmm. And um, I wound up doing a lot of the like translation back and forth gotcha. okay. and, and that kind of work also. Gotcha. Okay. So you're doing the, the data analytics stuff. Mm-hmm. You're doing some of the biz work. Mm-hmm. You're doing the communication bridging yeah. sort of thing that's amorphous that yeah. everyone's trying to figure out. And then uh, you come down here to Miami, mm-hmm. and but you're not in the communication department. No. Right. Uh, right. Um, I studied in the program of research, measurement, and evaluation in the School of Education. Um, so that's uh, research methods, that's some applied statistics. Um, so it's both finding things out and then thinking really hard about how we find things right, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I wanted to add in that third piece, which was telling people about mm-hmm. the things that we found out, right. um, which seems like a, like a very natural fit to yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're, so just, just quickly on how the, mm-hmm. how the program works. So you have, I would guess your core uh, part of the program in the school of ed, and mm-hmm. then you also have classes in the school of communication. Um, so I have classes in the school of ed, and then I have elective slots oh, gotcha. okay. that, I, that I use in the school gotcha. of communication. Okay. And then, so the reason that I wanted to chat with you is because you wrote one particular post that, mm-hmm. that caught my eye, but, but also sort of a back series mm-hmm. about getting people to connect mm-hmm. with data. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to maybe walk people through the, the core argument um, that you're making here? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the blog post is called Time and Space. It's on my blog, Data and Dragons. The core of the argument is that um, the space that is spent on um, on figures in a chart, the time that is spent in sort of scrolling through something that's interactive and digital is also a form of, of encoding, that we use these things to communicate priorities as well as communicating just straight information. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so I have some examples in the, in the blog post um, where 
there's just a blank page. Right. Uh, so I think it's like the Wall Street CEOs from the Great Recession. Yeah, yeah from the Recession, jail. right. Um, and it, it's just a blank page. And so if you think about what the New York Times can put on a page uh, in print, it's an enormous quantity mm-hmm. of information. And to them, um, having this blank page, having that shock value of they're just, they're nobody, there's nothing, right. um, was as important as everything else that they could have put on that page. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some other examples, too, where it's sort of the opposite, where rather than having a lot of blank space, you take something and you give it a lot of space. So um, there is part of the post that includes a visualization about um, the victims of the Las Vegas shooting. Um, and what that does is it takes, I think it's three numbers, and it expands that into an individual image of each person. Mm-hmm. So you could say that in, in three numbers. It's, it's very, very small. People injured, people shot, people killed. That could be a, a single sentence. It could be a very, very tiny table. And instead, what they've done is they have sort of blown that up into an individual um, outline, a, a sort of silhouette for each person. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the kind of thing that you often see where there's a single um, very uniform, like, bathroom sign person. Right, right. Uh, or like a bar chart or like, mm-hmm. yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It, they, they are, it looks like people are milling around talking to each other like they would have been yeah. at, at, at the, right. before, just before the massacre. So I think that that's giving space to each of those individual people and making them into people again right. to an extent. So, it, but it is, it's also interesting because you talked about there's sort of two parts here. Mm-hmm. So there's the print part mm-hmm. and then there's the digital part. Right. So I want to come to the digital part because mm-hmm. you have made an interesting comment how our perception, I guess, of the story mm-hmm. is in some ways driven by the order in which things are shown. Right, right. In the print side, when it comes to the CEO example you talked about mm-hmm. earlier is a, is a good one, right? So we're, mm-hmm. we're looking at it here. But like, it's basically, it just says in, in, the, in the Times, I think this is, like mm-hmm. 10, the CEOs of Wall Street sent to, get, to jail. Mm-hmm. And it's just a blank page. Now, that seems to work from my perspective, that works in print, mm-hmm. but I don't think it would work on the website mm. only because there's like, there's stuff on the top and yeah. there's stuff off to the side and then there's ads popping up. And so yeah. I wonder if you've thought about like this distinction between mm-hmm. this approach, print versus online. Yeah. I think that's where the sort of the timepiece comes in, mm-hmm. in the title. Um, so this particular example where it's just, it's a blank sheet might not work, but there was one, um, another gun violence post, um, <laughs> that was extremely striking to me. Um, I believe it was also in the New York Times. Um, It's a graphic of legislation, gun control legislation that's been passed um, over, I believe, between the Sandy Hook shooting and the Parkland shooting. And if it's a series of tiny calendars, and each day is shown in gray. It's month by month. Um, There's the number of mass shootings above each one. Um, There's little notes about, like, what might have been Mm -hmm. legislation. And... I just remember scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, and it's all blank. Right. Every single day is gray because right. nothing was ever passed. Yeah. And so it's this really uh, remarkable experience because you keep expecting something to happen, yeah. and nothing happens. Right. Um, and it's sort of violating the expectation that you have of this calendar. And it really, you know, it's one thing to say no gun control legislation was actually passed, or very minor gun control legislation was actually passed. Um, and another thing to just see where something should be mm-hmm. and have nothing be there at all. Right. So you're sort of taking the, the viewer's time to communicate a, an absence. Right. Yeah, I guess it is also true that there are pieces like um, 
there's this piece from the Washington Post mm-hmm. where it's the, the maps of segregation, which is mm-hmm. sort of now famous, but like it is its own thing. It's like a black background and there mm-hmm. are no ads. So I guess yeah. there are ways in which, in which they do mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. Uh, there was actually a, another sort of scrolling effect from that post about the Las Vegas massacre or the, the article about the Las Vegas massacre. There was uh, an online version of it as well. And they didn't just reproduce the same graphic, which was part of what was so striking about it to me. Mm. Uh, when you scroll through, um, at some point, you, you get to where I think this, this graphic was in the print version, and the screen just goes white. Mm-hmm. And then a sentence pops up that says, here is the number of people um, that were injured, and you just keep scrolling. Here is the number of people that were, you know. So it forces you to sit, to sort of sit with each of those ideas while you're scrolling, right. because there's this really, really compelling personal narrative going on on either side. To see what happened, you have to, to put your attention on yeah. these things. It, yeah, right. It takes your attention, and then you have to, you, you're forced to wait. Right. For the next piece. Yeah. As opposed to that bar chart where it's like, oh, there's three bars. Right. And that's what I think is, is so striking to me about it because in print, the, the limitation is really, I, I believe it's it's space. Mm-hmm. Whereas online, the limit is really attention. Mm. You have potentially unlimited space. Right. You can make your website or your article or your post or whatever as big as you want, but you're really limited by how long people want to look at it. Yeah. And so it, it sort of comes back to that thing about values and priorities where whoever was designing that visualization... Um, or that that scrolling experience decided that it was worth potentially losing people. Yeah. It was worth spending the time on it because this is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a lot of what was very powerful yeah. to me about it. Have you thought about the change in direction, as it were? So mm-hmm. most of these, you know, these sort of scrolly kind of mm-hmm. things are all vertical, mm-hmm. and we used to have a lot of steppers that were horizontal. Mm-hmm. And there only seems to be like the rare occasion where they're kind of blended. Like I mm-hmm. remember the Guardian did this story mm-hmm. on the Mekong River a few years ago now probably where at least in the mobile version it was a combination of you would scroll mm-hmm. down and then you could scroll across and then mm-hmm. it would bring you back i don't want to put you in the spot but like <laughs> have you come across any of those projects or just just generally the differences in direction in that way hmm. um and and maybe it's something that's just different between a mobile platform mm-hmm. and a and a desktop or a laptop where mm-hmm. especially if you don't have a yeah. touch screen it's just a different interaction, right? Yeah. Um, I think that part of the, my guess would be that the move towards having things be vertical scrolling is because people are looking things on at things on mobile. Um, from my own experience working with spreadsheets, I don't yeah. like going sideways. Right. So I just, right. I have an instinctive uh, desire to not go sideways. Yeah. If I think if something is stepping across a screen and it's it's, I, I don't have to actually scroll to see it. Where it's a physical step. Yeah, or that's the, the of, chapter, yeah, yeah, the page it's, turn. Yeah, it's yeah. less aversive to right, me than right. having to scroll right forever because I'm just like, oh my God, why isn't this in a database? Yeah. Why, why isn't this right. in a long format? <laughs> right. which, which lets you know how my brain works a little bit. Um, <laughs> I think also that um, I, I'm going to take back what I said. There is a little bit of, uh, of more space limitation when you look side to side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just because of how people are used to consuming information mm-hmm. digitally. If you're reading a document, you're scrolling down. Yeah, not scrolling, not scrolling side. Right. Unless, like you said, you ha- you're in like an e-reader or something where you have this yeah. vision of turning right. pages. But a map, for example, mm-hmm. like I, I mean, we obviously look north south, but also east west. Mm-hmm. And so if if the story was to go from west to east. Mm-hmm. Like the um, the Washington Post did mm-hmm. that story on the eclipse. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember how they set it up. I think it was its own sort of thing, but I don't remember it going like, where it was showing the path of the eclipse across the country, mm-hmm. but I don't remember like swiping or something like 
yeah. left and right. And so... My, my guess, if I remember it, is that you just, you zoom. You zoom, Yeah, right? there's, yeah. it's not like a, you have to go in a specific yeah. order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, anyway, so that's sort yeah. of inside, because that, that's interesting. But yeah. I want to get back to this, mm-hmm. um, this idea of using the silhouettes of the people. Mm-hmm. Because in, in this particular example of the, the Vegas shooting, it's silhouettes of people. It's not mm-hmm. dots. It's not bars. Yeah. It's, it's people. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess that's just a broader question about mm-hmm. using icons mm-hmm. in data visualization and, and your thoughts on how that helps a reader or mm-hmm. hinders a reader and how it's useful for data visualization creators and also potentially a challenge for, for creators. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that an icon communicates, it communicates a lot. And one of the things that is really interesting to me about icons is how important the level of detail is. Um, so in this um, Las Vegas massacre image, they're clearly people, they're sort of leaning, they're, they're grouping in kind of organic ways. So they're very clearly people, but it's really hard to tell what gender they might be. They're, um, you can't tell what race anybody is. You, can't, you really can't tell anything about them except that they're probably all adult people. Mm-hmm. So there are sort of different levels of detail that communicate different things. So like I mentioned, the sort of bathroom sign. Um, yeah. Icon. All that. All that says is is person. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's very, it's pretty generic. Um, it's pr- it, it's instantly recognizable. You're not. Right. People aren't going to spend a lot of time looking at it and going, "What is this?" Right. Um, or absorbing the details. Um, but as soon as you put more detail into that, the more specific you make an image, the more specifically people are going to read it. Yeah. Um, so if you take that sort of generic human outline and you make it more gendered or you um, make it into a a child or something like that, um, people are going to assume that what you're showing is, is sort of relevant to everything included in your, in your visualization. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, as you sort of add more detail, the message that you're sending gets more and more specific because you can get, of course, all the way down to a a photograph of someone, but then it's extremely specifically that person. Yeah. That person. Yeah. Um, So I think that it's something to be aware of where the less detail you have, the faster it is to process, but the less specific it's going to be and the less sort of immediate resonance it's going to have with the people who are looking at it. So it's so that the gender icons, for example, mm-hmm. like the bathroom icons, there's like basically the icon, which we all sort of recognize now as male, mm-hmm. only because I think the female icon, the sort of standard one has mm-hmm. like a triangle yeah. dress sort of thing, <laughs> right? Um, and so that directs us in the two the two directions, but mm-hmm. we also have like gender is a, is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so that adds an additional and race is, mm-hmm. you know, you know, people yeah. can be very, have various backgrounds. So like, you know, how are we as designers or maybe better question actually as you as a designer, <laughs> like communicating this, like how do you start thinking about this? I mean, I don't, there's, I don't think there's a right an, mm-hmm. an answer to this really, but you're clearly thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, you know, if someone were to bring a graph to you and to mm-hmm. say, you know, I've got, you know, income for men and income for women and mm-hmm. I want to use icons, like how do you start thinking about the limitations of that? And mm-hmm. So I think that in a case where you really have this categorical information in your data and it's really important to the analysis, um, it, it makes sense to show it as these as these two categories. But I think it's also important to recognize and acknowledge that you are going to have non-binary people in a lot of data sets and that not all women look a certain way, not all men look a certain way, not all non-binary people look a certain way. 
and I don't, you know, I don't have a great answer for right. how how do we um, have imagery that is instantly recognizable that um, appreciates that gender is not necessarily this hard and fast binary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really important to to keep it in mind and to just be mindful about about what you're doing um, while you're doing this work. Um, and if there are non-binary people in your data set, don't, don't forget about them. If they're there, make sure they're in, sort of visible. Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult, right? Because mm-hmm. there, there certainly, almost certainly are non-binary mm-hmm. people in a lot of the data sets we mm-hmm. use, but they're either, you know, for whatever reason, they're not identified. Yeah. And so, I think the general message, right, mm-hmm. is to just be aware or yeah, try to yeah. be aware, mm-hmm. which is which is what your implicit bias work is like, <laughs> it all comes back, right? Like, it, it, try to be aware of these things, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't show up in the data necessarily, mm-hmm. right? As an explicit tag. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I should probably clarify a little bit. I, I do mean that um, one should always be aware of it, but if in your data set you, you have this yeah, explicit sure, tag. Sure, you, yeah. I do sometimes see people saying, well, we have non-binary people in this data set, but it's like 1% of the data, so we're just gonna Which exclude them fit, from everything. Fit, right? Yes, yeah, right, right. right. Um, so that's the kind of thing that is important to me to not just right. like leave out or exclude. And yeah, that, that question of how do we do iconography when we're, we don't have discrete groups is, yeah. is really hard. Yeah, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> I don't have a perfect answer for it. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your research? So you've got this interesting mix, yeah. which is like, yeah. it's like the, you know, I don't know, it's like the Renaissance person. <laughs> I don't know, like it's like, seems like it's evaluation side, but also then mm-hmm. sort of the, the communications and database side. So can you talk a little bit about, I mean, a PhD is a long thing, so yes. I'm not going to, you know, but like, but yeah, so, so what, is your, what is your research about and how are you blending all this mm-hmm. together? Um, so right now I'm working with my advisor, um, uh, Dr. Swan on on uh, second order meta analysis, um, which is an abstraction of an abstraction, uh, basically. Um, so, a meta analysis is a synthesis of of lots of different effect sizes about the same phenomenon synthesized into one. So it's sort of averaging across a bunch of different studies to say, we have looked at a lot of research about this issue. If we combine everything together, here is our estimate of how big this is, um, or how big, you know, what this relationship mm-hmm. is. So first order meta-analysis, which is what most people think of, is summarizing primary research. So you have an individual study, and then where you compare one group of people to another group of people, and then um, you get a bunch of those, and that's a first-order meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. I'm studying second-order meta-analysis at the okay. moment, which is you're doing a meta-analysis of meta-analyses. Gotcha. So you have 100 <laughs> studies, 100 point estimates of some relationship mm-hmm. between eight, X and Y, yep. and 10 people have done meta-analyses mm-hmm. of those 100 studies, and mm-hmm. so you are doing the meta-analysis of the 10 mm-hmm. studies. Yes. Okay. In a particular area? In a... Um, so, so I'm studying it from a methodological oh, perspective. Okay, okay. So um, right now what I'm doing is, is a simulation study. So it's right. all, com- I make up data to study an abstraction of an abstraction, right, right, which is okay. the most academia thing I think, <laughs> I think I've ever said. Um, I go through all that to say that um, this has been a case study mm-hmm. in how hard it is to talk to people about statistics. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, where, you know, I'm trying to write a, a grant application or something, a, an article about this, and it takes eight words just to say the two things that I'm talking about, yeah. and people's eyes, people's eyes goes right at the third word. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that's the some of the research on the statistics side that I'm doing. Um, I have a, an interest, though, 
sort of more generally in um, this translation piece. Mm -hmm. um, I think that data can seem like a foreign country full of incredibly perfect hard truths that if you throw a lot of money at, the, at, at trying to get at it, um, you can come back with an ironclad path of action that will undoubtedly result in success. You can yeah. come back with pure hard truth. Um, and having worked with data in a lot of different ways, um, sort of having my hands in databases, seeing how it's collected, seeing how it's analyzed, that that's not how it works. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's right. In, it's in, data is intensely human. And yeah. so um, to me, being able to communicate, um, being able to sort of accurately communicate what the data is actually saying, mm -hmm. um, being able to trans, being able to sort of translate it for people um, is immensely important. So you've got this methodological piece of your mm -hmm. work here mm -hmm. that is... Uh, doing this second order meta analysis, but really at the core of what you, it sounds like what the core of what you really drives you in some ways is trying to take these hundred estimates mm. and trying to communicate that to people, even though there's various levels of uncertainty and distributions around mm. within each study and then within, you know, across all these studies. So mm. is the, Sort of bottom line goal, I guess, to try to figure out a way to communicate relationships between variable A and variable B to policymakers and stakeholders and decision makers. Is that like what's where you're trying to get to? Um, I'm going to give you again the most academic answer possible, <laughs> uh, which is well, I'm glad we're sitting at the university. <laughs> we should have done this like at a coffee shop. I would have gotten like more. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So that is. That's one of the things yeah, yeah. That, I, that I really want to do, and that's very important to me. Um, I think that with my work here at the university, I'm very much a both-and person. Mm -hmm. um, I want to be able to um, help people do this research in sort of the best way possible, mm -hmm. um, while also having this, being able to, to communicate it out. Um, I am also really interested in, in applied problems in sort of getting into more actual data and doing analysis on... Um, stuff that, that actually sort of comes from people and yeah. is, is applicable to, um, to sort of more hands-on situations. Um, I do think that um, part of doing a good analysis is being able to tell people about it. Because mm. if your analysis, if you do the most brilliant and cutting and insightful analysis in the world and nobody knows what you're talking about, it's, it's the tree falling in the forest Absolutely. thing, right? Absolutely. If, if your analysis falls in a desk drawer, <laughs> did, did you ever really do it? Absolutely. Hallelujah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so for me, it's, uh, it's this combination of wanting to make sure that data is, is handled in a responsible way um, and also making sure that um, it's, it's understood. And these things very much go hand in hand for me. And what's also very important, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it, is making sure that it's understood by the people who are going to use it. Mm. Not just having other academics or other visualization people understand what, what I'm doing, but um, making it a more, more open to people. Yeah, absolutely. Which is one of the, the really big challenges, I think. And as someone who really likes making things and experimenting and sort of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks and falling, you know, not falling, leaping down rabbit holes, um, <laughs> it can be hard to sort of sort of reel it back to yeah. what actually makes sense to other people. Yeah. Um, well, you, I think you've cut out a pretty big slice of the <laughs> graduate work pie. So yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Alyssa, this is this is great. Thanks. Um, 
and good luck Thank on you. all this. Um, and I'll, I'll put the posts on the, on the mm -hmm. show notes so people can check them out and I'll put some pictures on the site. Mm -hmm. So great. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned a lot. I really do hope you'll check out Alyssa's blog, Data and Dragons. She's writing about some really interesting things and uh, some interesting observations, especially at the crossroads of data visualization and research methods and statistics. So please do check out the show notes. There's some good resources there, some old blog posts, um, and some other things that I think you'll find interesting. So until next time, this has been the Policy of This Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.